Our Old Testament reading is from Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15. Lend your attention, this is God's word. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rachel's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alam Bachuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. The sermon text this morning will be verses 19 through 24. It's a collection of three teachings, uh, all centered on the question of uh, earthly goods, earthly gifts and our attitude towards them, and what Christ calls us to uh, in the light of his claims upon us uh, and who uh, we are before God. So lend your attention. This is God's word. Uh, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. Thus ends God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon it. Father, your word is true and endures forever. Uh, the word abides, though heaven and earth uh, fade, uh, not a single uh, portion of your word uh, will fail, uh, for it proceeds from you. You are the uh, eternal God, infinite, eternal, unchanging. Uh, you are truth, uh, you are light, in you there is no darkness, no, none at all, and thus your word is true and good and is a light and a lamp unto our feet and our path. We give you thanks for the true light who has come into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for this light being our life. We give you thanks for the gift of eternal life that comes in him and in him alone. For we are in the midst of a world that is fading away, Lord, and we feel it and yearn for it something that abides. And so we pray now as we turn to that abiding word, that eternal word, that you would feed us and nourish us on that bread from heaven, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as uh, your provision uh, unto sinners, uh, not only um, now but always, uh, as he is uh, the exact image of who you are, O invisible God. And we thank you for these things and ask that you would posture us aright to receive of Christ's bounty, we ask in his name, amen. In C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, uh, the main character, Ransom, uh, travels uh, first to Mars and then to Venus. It's a remarkable journey. <laughs> and he discovers that these planets have life on them. Um, they are planets, places that are very different from his home on Earth. Unsurprisingly, this experience opens up new understanding for him about Mars, about Venus. He marvels at the new knowledge that such journeys uh, brought him. Uh, but perhaps most surprisingly of all, when he returns to Earth, he finds that he now sees Earth very differently. That journeying to another world placed his own world in a new light. In one sense, this is a remarkably simple idea, right? Common to so many new experiences open new perspectives. You've experienced this time and time again. You travel to a different country and then you see your country differently. You live in a different home and you see your home differently and so on and so forth. But what if we're in need of that same new perspective that Ransom got? Namely, a new perspective on Earth and everything that Earth has to offer. Now, I assume that none of you have traveled beyond Earth unless you have wonderful lives, which you have managed to keep concealed from me during our four years of knowing each other. But likely I'm safe in assuming that you have all been earthbound for the entirety of your lives. Or to use the language of today's passage, none of you have been to heaven. You can't tell me about these wonderful storehouses that are alluded to 
in Christ's teaching. You can't tell me about what's in them and how to put stuff in them, as is the simple thrust of the image that the Lord uses when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Can you tell me the mystery of that statement? No, our lives are lived on earth. We're surrounded by earth's offerings, earth's comforts, earth's riches, earth's pleasures, in addition to earth's frustrations, earth's pains, earth's poverty. As far as our experience goes, it's all we know. Thus, we cannot avail ourselves strictly of experience to open for us a necessary perspective, one which is vital to our lives, according to Christ. Now, fascinatingly, there's a sense in which our experience does attest to heavenly treasures. It's not an experience that's easy to articulate. If you look out over people on earth, you find that there are many people who occupy their whole lives seeking to accumulate more. They've built an entire existence based upon some endeavor of gaining something that earth has to offer. You know these people. We have this in us. More wealth, more power, more health, more strength, more beauty, more beautiful things, more success. There are a vast number of people who content themselves with these pursuits. But strikingly, there's just as many people who feel at some level how terribly empty such pursuits are at the end of the day. They feel that if this is all there is to life, well, it's dreadfully disappointing. And so there is a sense in which there is some sort of, let's call it a pre-verbal or a subverbal or a subconscious or a soulish testimony that the Lord has left upon all of his creatures which says there's more to life than meets the eye. To which our Lord says, yes, <laughs> there is to spend a life accumulating earth's things is dreadfully disappointing and dangerous. For you were not made for stuff, for the accomplishments of earth. You are an immortal soul. <laughs> Children, do you have a soul as well as a body? Yes, I have a soul that will never die. How silly to think that an immortal soul will be satisfied with perishable stuff, with the trinkets and the glittering objects of earth, which as lovely as they may be, are ever only the loveliness of flowers and grass, here today and gone tomorrow. Beloved, God made us to know him, to know him, to know the infinite and eternal one, to know the most blessed, most beautiful, most glorious one, the one infinite in being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, truth. This is the one for whom you were made. 
He designed you to know him, to delight in him, to worship him. So is it any wonder that there's such raging dissatisfaction as we pursue stuff? (laughs) Here our Lord gives us that heavenly perspective. We have not been to heaven. We have not traveled to Malacandra or Paralandra. Mars and Venus. (laughs) We've not traveled beyond Earth's orbit, and even if we had, you'd only find more of the material universe. We've not gone into the mysterious regions of the invisible places, but there's one who has come down from heaven. There is one who has entered our experience who speaks authoritatively of this other world for which we were made. And he has told us our blessedness is not found here. But rather he directs us heavenward. He directs us Godward. Even as the son, he points to the father and says, this is the source of your blessedness. This is the source of your life. And by directing our gaze heavenward, he also sets the trajectory of our lives Godward. So we consider this morning. First, we're made for heavenly treasure. Second, we're made for light. And third, we're made for God. (laughs) First, we're made for heavenly treasure. That's how he starts. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to ask first, well, what are, what are these treasures on earth? You can store up for yourself treasures on earth the way that the Greek grammar works. He's actually probably probably disrupting a practice that we're already doing. So it's probably translated, hey, stop storing up treasures on earth. (laughs) Hey, stop it. You're doing it right now. You need to stop it. Stop it. So what is it? What are earth's treasures? Well, from one angle, it's unsurprising. It's wealth, right? The image communicates that. Well, what can moth eat? What can rust destroy? Or potentially, what can vermin destroy? It's unclear what exactly that is. What can moth eat? What can vermin destroy? Well, moths can eat clothing. Vermin can destroy food. What can thieves steal? Well, they can steal valuables. They can steal material wealth. So in one sense, it's storing up. It's hoarding material wealth. But from another angle, I think we're invited to broaden our perspective of earthly treasures. We've just come off verses 1 through 18, where we heard this refrain of reward, reward, reward. And he contrasts one reward, praise from man. You can have it. He says, fine, you want it? You can have it. Woe to you, (laughs) but you can have it. And he juxtaposes that with a different reward, which is presumably praise from heaven, that which delights the Father, that which is pleasing unto the Father. And so there's a sense in which the treasures that we store up on earth are broader than just material wealth. It goes on. 
to include the praise of man, pleasure, power, earthly renown, health, beauty, all of these things that are set up as the choicest gifts that earth have to offer. And as you look out over the course of human history, you realize people, by and large, pursue one of those things, if not multiple of those things. This is why kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and kingdoms fight. This is why there's strife in homes and in families and in cities. They're competing over these valuables, these goods. Is it not the case? Scripture is plain that these things are setting themselves forth as potential objects of hope, strength, power, glory, wealth, weapons, so on and so forth. And that seems to be what it means to lay them up. It means to make them your ultimate object. It means to make them the source of your security. It means to make them the source of your comfort, to make them the source of your hope. He's clearly not forbidding honest labors and an honest wage here. Paul teaches us plainly later, if a man doesn't work, a man shouldn't eat. What is he commending there? He's commending honest work, honest wages as God's usual way of supplying for us the necessary provisions for earthly life. He's also clearly not forbidding saving as such. Paul teaches, children do not save up for their parents, but rather parents for their children, by which he commends the relative goodness of looking to the future and reasonably setting aside for our children or other good future endeavors. So if he's not forbidding honest labors, if he's not forbidding wise saving, what is he forbidding or commenting as a foolish practice? He's saying it's foolish to make these things your ultimate aim. It's absurd to derive true comfort, hope from these things. But mark the allure that these things have. Mark how easily they insinuate themselves into our hearts as our source of comfort, as our source of hope. How often do we think, if I only had more money, if I could only eat this meal tonight, if I could only drink this drink, if I could only get my body to look this way, if I could only ensure my children turn out this way, if I could only get this idea or this product out to more people, then, oh, then what? Then what? You'd smile for a second or two and then realize that the wine you want to drink is actually destroying the body that you want to shape and collapse into a puddle of frustration. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You'd be dissatisfied as soon as you obtained it. You'd smile for an instance and then you'd have to come up with some new thing to set your mind on and some new deception that obtaining that would bring actual delight. Why? 
Well, there's any number of answers to that question, but the one that the Lord points out to us here is because all gifts, all wealth, everything that earth has to offer is impermanent. That's the fundamental problem here, isn't it? It's the impermanence of earthly goods. They're all perishable. They're subject to decay. Or they're subject to sin. That's what the thief seems to profile here. There's no guarantee that even the blessings that God gives to the righteous are going to be kept in the possession of the righteous. Why? Because we live in a world marred by sin and futility. You can read Ecclesiastes for the deep lament as he surveys the land and marks, this doesn't make sense. (laughs) This doesn't make sense. This is maddening. A good man stores up and then it's gone as his son is a fool and spends everything that he spent his life working for in an instant. A good man is thwarted. A wicked man succeeds. This makes no sense. It's part of the crookedness of our world. And it's one that's not going away, beloved. It's not going away. It's not go. Hear me. Hear, hear me. It's not going away. But God overcomes it for good. The fundamental problem is the impermanence, the futility of wealth. It's unstable. It's not a foundation. This is what Paul teaches. Charge them not to put their hope upon the uncertainty of riches, but upon God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. These gifts may be adornments inside the house, but they're not the foundation of the house. They might bring temporary comfort or enjoyment, but they're not to be our ultimate source of comfort or joy. Mark how this is the beginning of good news. It's hard news, but it's good news. All the castles and the fortresses that we attempt to build for ourselves against the misfortunes of life are really castles and fortresses made of sand. (laughs) Children, have you ever built a sandcastle? Any sandcastle builders out there? Do you think that if you went back to the sandcastle that you built, it would still be there? I hope I'm not crushing anybody's dreams right now. (laughs) It's not there anymore, guys. The wind, the rain, the waves, it's gone. It's gone. Get over it. No. (laughs) It's gone. Those sandcastles are gone. They can't stand up even to mild adversity like wind and rain and wave. Such it is with misplaced hope. They can't stand up to the actual slings and darts of an outrageous misfortune, as one of my professors was wont to say. But there is something that can, and that's the turn to the good news. There really is something that remains. I mean, even just that is worth marking. There's something to be had that's not subject to that futility. The decay the redistribution of wickedness (laughs) that's available it's made known to us where by the one who's come down from heaven the exhortation here to stop is also filled out by an exhortation to do to store up in heaven this treasure which is really just a variation of what christ teaches in john 6 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Oh, that's wonderful. Think about how frequent that theme shows up in John's gospel. Everybody who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. Everybody who's going to eat this bread is going to be hungry again. But I have living water. I have bread that leads unto eternal life. Indeed, I am bread. I'm the only one who satisfies, Christ says. Beloved, that's the first thing to get in order when you hear this call to store up treasure in heaven. It is a call to gain an interest in Jesus Christ by faith. For he is the only one who has eternal life. He is the only one who has put off the bonds of death, not such that he just escaped them, but such that he subjected them to himself, such that he has the keys to death and Hades. If none of you have been to Mars, certainly none of you have done that. This is a wonderful little bit in Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is trying to live forever, and he goes to Utnapishtim. Indulge me, Pastor King. He goes to Utnapishtim, and Utnapishtim says, well, if you want to live forever, the first thing you need to do is beat sleep. Gilgamesh can't even fight off sleep, and then he goes into a pit of despair. He's like, if I can't even beat sleep, how am I going to beat death? (laughs) And he can't. That's what he learns. He's thwarted at every turn, so he's got to find some other alternative. Here it is. It's right here. This is what Gilgamesh was looking for beyond the scorpion men. Go read Gilgamesh. (laughs) Jesus Christ, I have eternal life. The Father has life in himself, and he's given the Son life to give to all who come to him. The first thing to hear here is come to Christ by faith. He's the only one who has life. You might be alive right now, but you do not possess life. Not natively. You're being upheld right now by him. And you're going to die. And then what? Unless you know the one who is the resurrection and the life, it's going to be a gateway to a fate worse than death. The second death, as Revelation calls it. But there's one who has life and gives life. Come to the Son and then live following the sun because that's the second vista that opens up on these heavenly treasures i should just do a sermon on this as i'm now realizing (laughs) there's wonderful wonderful riches to be mined out of what the heavenly treasure is matthew uses it in a number of different ways at one point he says that the kingdom itself is the treasure At another point, he says that the truth, the teaching of the kingdom is the treasure. At another point, he says that true virtue is the treasure. For out of the treasure, the good treasure of the heart, one brings forth good. But beloved, if you indulge me just for one moment, the true treasure that is in view right here is the pleasure of the Father. That's the treasure that's stored up. That's the treasure that's set before us. We get a couple of glimpses of heaven in Matthew's gospel, don't we? There's a couple of times where Matthew uses this really interesting language of the heavens opened. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. 
a glimpse into that world? And what do we see? What do we glimpse of that world when the heavens are rent? The Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's no small indication that the choicest treasures of heaven are not stuff, but it's the pleasure and joy of the Father. Think about that, beloved. Think about how much encouragement comes to you when a godly spouse, a godly sibling, a godly Christian, a godly parent comes to you and says, hey, well done. Well done. Isn't that balm for the soul? Isn't that a little flash of light in an otherwise dark and discouraging world? How much more the prospect of hearing from the Father in the Son pronounced for the entire cosmos, well done, enter into your master's joy. That's the treasure of heaven. That's what Christ sets forth as a trajectory, a legitimate and beautiful trajectory for our lives. He says, live with that as your vista, as your aim, as your goal, as your purpose. Does it tantalize you? Do do you feel the prospect of that? Could you imagine? Can you imagine? Beloved, make no mistake, the Christian is the only one in the world who can please God. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. As we live our lives of imperfect faith and stumbling obedience, as a father is delighted in the stumbling steps of his child, so our father is delighted in our stumbling steps towards new creation. And this is no small comfort to us especially as that pronouncement of well done is set forth as the eternal glory into which Christ is bringing us. The pleasure of the Father is here set forth as the treasure of heaven, as the thing that's worth living for by faith and obedience in Jesus Christ. Indeed, a thing that's worth dying for in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll try to tackle this next image in that we're made for light. That's how he continues. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. It's a strange picture for us. It's a strange image for us. I'm not exactly sure I understand the exact mechanics of the picture, but the general exhortation is plain. We can take away a couple of plain implications of what's going on here. We were made to be indwelt by light. That's plain. We were made to be full of light. To be full of light is clearly agreeable, clearly desirable. To be full of darkness is clearly bad. (laughs) And the way that such a state comes about has to do with the eye. He says if the eye is good, 
then the body is full of light. If the eye is bad, then the body is full of darkness. Now, he's already taught similarly in one respect when he talks about if the eye causes you to sin, pluck it out because it's better that one member perish than the whole body be sent to perdition. So it's similar here. He uses very similar language. Eye, whole body, that's the same. What he seems to be talking about is a small member can play a disproportionate role. A small feature can play a disproportionately significant role in the human life. You can think of James teaching on this, right? How small the tongue is. How much trouble it starts. (laughs) And so it seems to be here. But the takeaway is plainly, make the eye good. That's the takeaway, isn't it? So perhaps the first thing we need to hear is... Jesus is the only one with power over sight. We're going to meet him as the one who makes the eye good at several points in the Gospels. Son of David, have mercy on us, cried out two blind men. This healing of the blind consistently profiling the Lord Jesus Christ with the fundamental power over sight. So we're supposed to hear again, okay, this is something that I can't do exactly. I can heed this, but he's got to make my eye good, which is a great place to start. Because if we're constantly being sent to Christ, we're exactly where we should be. If we constantly find ourselves falling upon the Lord, that's exactly where he would have us be. So then what is a good eye here? Well, the first possibility is it's a call for spiritual understanding. This is how Jesus uses it in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, he laments or explains the state of the people. He says that they see, but they never perceive. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But then he turns to the disciples, and he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see. So is he talking about physical sight there? No, he does not seem, they're all seeing the same thing. They see a man without much to commend himself physically, right? He had no form or beauty that we should look upon him. So they're all seeing the same thing. But Jesus is saying, you understand, and they don't. Why? Well, it's hinted at in blessed are your eyes, namely that God has opened them. God has granted them an understanding about who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is. You might be tired, beloved. I hope it's not tired. But if you see that Jesus is the Christ, you've received no small blessing because God has opened your eyes to see this. This is not a native talent that you have. This is not something boastworthy that you brought to the table. You are just as blind as those beggars, and the Lord has showed you mercy. How humbling that is for us. 
that if you see that indeed Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, that indeed humanity has plunged itself into sin and ruin, that indeed we have treacherously withheld worship from the true and living God, indeed there is life and hope in Christ and in Christ alone, these things are not conclusions you have reached by virtue of your native prowess. These are things that God has revealed to you. So for as much as he exhorts us to search his word, to meditate upon his word, to think upon these things, let us never forget that in the final analysis, true understanding comes from God. And that's just as true concerning material wealth. We do well to hear this in the broader instruction. We're constantly seeing things wrongly. We're constantly seeing that bank account as a quantifiable gauge of how much hope I have. <laughs> he says, no, no, you see wrongly when you look at it that way. You're in need of right seeing for right living. There's another sense in which the exhortation to find a good eye is the exhortation unto single-mindedness. The ESV translates this healthy. So it says, if your eye is healthy... Uh, the King James Version actually brings out the most direct sense of the word when it says, if your eye is single, single. So here we get this scriptural exhortation away from double-mindedness unto single-mindedness. You could think of Elijah and the episode with the prophets of Baal where he excoriates Israel for constantly limping between two opinions. Oh, maybe Baal is God. He gives us what we want most of the time. Oh, no, maybe Yahweh is God. He seems to have quite a bit of power himself. And they're just like, like lemmings. Elijah's like, get me out of here! I mean, he literally says that later. He's like, literally, take me. I'm done. This is too much. These people are awful. Moses said the same thing. You people are awful, by the way. The servants are constantly complaining against you. I'm there too. So there's a sense in which this double-mindedness, limping between two opinions, is in view here. Does this mean that doubt is utterly excluded for a Christian? That you're going to live all your Christian days without wrestling with earnest questions? I hope you don't hear it that way. I hope you don't parent that way. I think it's important for us to give our children space for earnest wrestling with sincere questions. Double-mindedness is not the asking of sincere questions. And unless we're ready for those sincere questions and ready to direct them, to where true answers can be found as they earnestly grapple with the faith we're seeking to pass on to them, well, we're going to do them a great disservice if every time they ask a question, we say, how, how, dare, you, how dare you ask? How dare you question? That's not what Scripture means by double-mindedness. What Scripture means by double-mindedness is living according to two incompatible principles. We confess that we believe in one true and living God, that he's pleased to make known salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we live as if it's like a faint possibility. Like maybe it's true, and I'm going to kind of hedge my bets with these things over here. That's double-mindedness. Or a more sympathetic rendering is it's kind of Peter. 
when he walks on the water, where he has this single vision, and with this singular vision upon the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ leads him forth on a remarkable trajectory. But then his vision splits, and he takes his eyes from the Lord of glory, and he fixates on his horizon, and the horizon eclipses the one who is the Lord of the horizon, and he sinks. And we find how often we're double-minded, right? Because that vision of faith where Christ is set before us is the one who's leading us, holding us, guiding us, directing us, assuring us of the Father's love. We lose sight of him and we begin to glimpse uncertainty, wind, waves, trial, adversity, discomfort, want, hunger, nakedness, famine, sword, and we think these things have separated us from the love of God. Have they? No, they've simply eclipsed Christ. Praise be to God, he doesn't let us sink. He does let us feel something of our native helplessness, how we're as buoyant as the rock. (laughs) We have no native buoyancy, but eyes fixed upon Christ, a rock walked on water. That's remarkable. There's a call into a single-mindedness not to store up not to diversify our portfolio to change the images. Well, maybe I'll get some heavenly treasure in there, but maybe I'll just cut my risk with a bit of earthly treasure too. That's not how it works. And then the last exhortation here is hidden in a Hebrew idiom that's difficult to discern. It's a call for generosity. There's a Hebrew idiom underlying this good eye, bad eye, In Proverbs 22, you'll read, Blessed is the man with a good eye because he shares his bread with the poor. And then later on in Proverbs, you'll see, Don't eat the bread of a man with a bad eye because he's inwardly calculating. He says to you, eat and drink, but beware because his heart is not with you. So what is a good eye in that? Generosity, one who's willing to share, to give out of a true sight and sense of what really matters. What's a bad eye? Someone who begrudges generosity. Someone who hoards and resents anyone who would infringe upon what he has hoarded. You tell me which one is full of light. You tell me which one has grasped the truth. The truth of who God is is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Is that a portrait of miserliness or a portrait of generosity? You tell me which one's full of light, the one who has gripped the truth about earthly riches, that there's no taking it with you. The naked You came into this world, and naked you will leave it. Which one has grasped the truth about the eternal life that comes only in Christ? Which one has grasped the truth of Christ's teaching that is more blessed to give than to receive? Why? Because it's more blessed to be like God who gives and receives from none. It's more blessed to be like the son who gives his life as a ransom for many, though all abandoned him in his hour of need.
Beloved, this is light dawning for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the life that opens up in the light of such a dawn, such that the things of this earth are held with a looseness, a looseness that comes only through the perspective and the person sent down from heaven to lead us into the light of life and into the true treasure of the Father's joy when he returns. May he give us the eyes to see. Join me in prayer. Almighty God and Father, we do give you thanks for sending Christ, for opening our eyes uh, to the wonders of uh, who you are, to opening our eyes to the, the heinousness of our plight and that we have mired ourselves in the clay and have contented ourselves with clay kingdoms, clay prospects, when you have made us for light, when you have made us to know you and to love you and to worship you. So we pray that as the Son of Man instructs us, Lord, that you would teach us to receive of his instruction, that you would bolster us in faith, Lord, as we do confess to be much like Peter, feeling helpless upon the wind and the waves and so easily overcome by them as we take our eyes from our Lord and our Savior. We thank you that you do not let us drown so easily, that you are pleased to manifest your glory in preserving us and keeping us for your namesake. We thank you for these things in Christ. Amen.